Welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC on ABC4, Rosenstrike versus Almeida, also known as UFC Charlotte. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com. If you're watching this on video right now, you can see already that I am flying solo as my uh, usual co-host, Keith Schillen, is out sick. So, uh, special card, special show. Uh, I will be running this down solo tonight. If Keith were here, he would make sure to tell you, as he does every time we do one of these shows, that the Shillin and Duffy show is not a betting show. And do not take our predictions as betting advice. Just understand that that goes double when it's me flying solo, because you know how we rock. Uh, nonetheless, we've got uh, 12 fights going down at the Spectrum Center in Charlotte, North Carolina this weekend. That'll be uh, Saturday, May 13th. It's a card that has been in a considerable amount of flux. I mean... A bout was poached from this card literally today, Monday, that I'm recording this and drafted into the main event of next Saturday's card. This card has had a main event demotion that remained on the card. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Honestly, UFC Charlotte feels almost like the Greyhound bus terminal in your town. If you live in a city large enough to have a Greyhound or other transit bus terminal, you know that this is a place that's confusing scary kind of grimy stuff's coming stuff's going that's this card uh there are 12 fights on this card i'm only going to have to preview 10 of them for you because two of them keith and i have already previewed for uh previous ufc events and they were canceled or postponed and kicked down the line to ufc on abc4 so yeah it's that kind of card a card that has been in flux don't be surprised if not all 12 of these fights even make it through the gate uh, through Friday's weigh-ins or into the cage on Saturday. It's just that kind of card. Giving this card a grade in advance, I will say I'll give it a B. There are a couple of ranked fights on the card. Rosenstrike versus Almeida. Both those guys are top 15-ish fighters, one of them kind of on his way down, one very much on his way up. And because it's heavyweight, they're both still very much within shouting distance of the title picture. The co-main event, Anthony Smith versus Johnny Walker, used to be the main event. That's a longtime contender at this point in Smith versus a guy in Walker that, again, light heavyweight being what it is, always going to be no more than two or three wins away from being into the title picture there then the rest of it it's the best you can expect out of a fight night card these days it's got a whole grip of reliable action fighters tim means matt brown alex morono it has a number of interesting up-and-coming prospects in carlos olberg it has the debut of uh, tainara lisboa which we'll be talking about uh, very soon here as that's set to be the curtain jerker and then it has the other thing that every fight night card kind of has to have these days, which is contender series alums who are probably on their way out in loser leaves town matches, because that's the circle of life that we exist in these days. If you're following the UFC, I don't have much else to say about this because I already feel as though I am quacking into the void. So without any further ado, let's jump right into these prelims. 
first fight out of the gate at UFC on ABC4 is a women's bantamweight matchup between Jessica Rose Clark and the debuting Tainara Lisboa. Clark, the 35-year-old Australian by way of Las Vegas, is 11-8 with one no contest overall. She is 4-4 since joining the UFC as a veteran of a number of promotions regionally and worldwide and a two-time Invicta veteran, but four and four since joining the UFC, two and three since moving up from the flyweight division to the bantamweight division. She is on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, she fought twice last year, got armbarred in the first round by Stephanie Egger at UFC Fight Night Walker versus Hill in February, came back in July at UFC 276 and got armbarred in the first round once again by Julia Stolyarenko. That was her last appearance, so it'll be about 10 months out, and Jesse Jess will be looking to bounce back from the third uh, losing streak of her professional career. Standing in her way will be the debuting Lisboa. The 32-year-old Brazilian is 5-2 and two as a professional mixed martial artist. Fought most recently last April in a regional event in Brazil. Choked out a regional fighter uh, with an arm triangle choke in the first round. But that's not really what's notable about uh, Tainara Lisboa. She was signed by the UFC right after that fight uh, last April, last May. So she's been on UFC roster for a year. It has taken her a year to make it to the cage. But there are a couple of important things to know about Lisboa and some things that you will hear over and over again that are not that important. The important thing is that she is a former multiple-time world Muay Thai champion like legit full stop, uh, reputable organizations, reputable belts. She uh, has been one of the better Muay Thai fighters in her weight range in the world over the last decade. That's the good news. Something you'll hear mentioned uh, probably numerous times during the buildup on fight week or shared on social media or even mentioned by the UFC booth is that she did take on uh, Valentina Shevchenko in Muay Thai back when Shevchenko was living in Peru, back when both of these women, I mean, they must have been 21 and 22, 21 and 23, respectively. Video of that fight is out there. Don't read too much into it. Both women were extremely young at the time. It was a different art. When If you see her being pretty competitive with one of the pound-for-pound all-time greats, just understand that that's no indication of how she's going to do in MMA in 2023. The other thing that you will hear or see or read about uh, Lisboa is that she does have a loss to Norma Dumont on her record. Norma Dumont, of course, the Bantamweight slash featherweight contender slash favorite of the Shillin and Duffy show uh, fan base. They fought in Jungle Fight in Brazil uh, 2016. So several years before Lisboa really turned to MMA in seriousness, very early in Dumont's career, video of that one is out there. It was in Jungle Fight, so there's good quality of video. But when you see that fight take place, don't read too much into it. Dumont manhandled her, one woman handled her. Uh, but that's, yeah, don't worry about that stuff. The stuff you want to know about Lisboa is she is a top shelf Muay Thai striker specifically I mean she fights out of orthodox stance as a an outstanding Muay Thai fighter she has all the weapons good power in both hands uh really hard right straight and right cross 
excellent leg dexterity. She has uh, good kicks to the body, both just kicks with the front leg to to the ribs, uh, rear leg kicks, a good teep that uh, she is used, particularly in MMA, to frustrate women who aren't Muay Thai fighters and are not used to that and kind of keep them at her preferred range. Just uh, it, it looks like a really painful front kick to take to the gut. And who knows what kind of upside she has. Again, she's 32 years old, was signed by the UFC at 31. She's making her her debut here. She probably is very much in her prime right now physically, but cresting or at the tail end, uh, end of her prime, certainly qualifying as, as a late starter or a late bloomer in MMA. Clark, I think, is actually a pretty good first test for her. A first kind of a barometer to determine where she slots in to the UFC Bantamweight division. Oh, I should have mentioned right off the top after introducing uh, these women. As of right now, Clark is a slight favorite. She's minus 140. Lisboa out there around plus 115, plus 120 or so. Clark is, I think, very, very much a, a known quantity. She's 35 years old. She has been gradually refining the same basic skill set uh, over the course of her Invicta, Eternal MMA, and uh, UFC career. She was pretty good size for flyweight. At Bantamweight, I'd, I'd say she's dead average. She's physically strong, not a super standout fast twitch athlete, and that's what's kind of hampered her. Uh, she's been able to get beaten to the punch by women with greater reach and or who have uh, just better footwork and faster hands. Her two-fight losing streak, I don't find that too discouraging. It's a couple of first-round armbar submissions by women who are armbar specialists, and in the case of Stolyarenko, specifically first-round armbar specialists. So at the very least, she's unlikely to get armbarred by Tainar Lisboa. I think she's a good test for Lisboa because she is someone who's going to come forward. She is a willing striker. Even if her technique is a little ugly, she's going to throw some volume. She's going to come forward. Uh, Clark is comfortable and does well when she's the better wrestler. Like I said, she's not super fast, but she is strong. She is persistent. And at 135, like she, I think, has at least an average gas tank, maybe an above average gas tank when she needs it and isn't getting armbarred in the first round. So this will be a, a fight where we can determine whether Lisboa can keep a determined forward marching uh, UFC bantamweight off of her. Ironically for Lisboa, because considering that she is a, a Muay Thai champ, I think the clinch is probably the area she wants to avoid against Clark. I said that we shouldn't read too much into Lisboa's fight with Norma Dumont. And having said that, I'm about to refer to it right now because the clinch was not Lisboa's uh, happy place there. Every time they met before Lisboa could shove Dumont off or do any damage there, uh, she was getting thrown to the ground. She got thrown with the classic headlock throw and just generally got bodied by Dumont. Part of that is just because Dumont was bigger, uh, physically stronger, had the trademark Norma Dumont center of gravity thing going on. But for Lisboa, she, I, I think she'd be best served just to deny that to Clark entirely. Uh, I think she can punish 
Clark at mid range and long range, start kicking her to the legs, kicking her to the body, use the teep to keep uh, Clark off of her. Maybe start throwing in the head kicks once Clark is guessing and stumbling because if Clark does manage to come forward, rush in behind punches, force a clinch, Lisboa should be able to hurt her there. Again, she's a outstanding Muay Thai fighter, but that's also where she's going to be vulnerable to uh, what Clark wants to do. Uh, as I said, Clark is the slight favorite here, but I'm opening this one up with a, a bit of an upset pick right off the bat. I don't know where Clark's confidence is coming off of back-to-back -back, uh, losses, her commitment to her career going forward. Those are all intangibles. I, I hate basing a pick on those things, but we have someone in, in Lisboa that has been champing at the bit to get to the UFC and show what she can do. She was super, super jubilant about getting signed a year ago and her debut has been delayed until now. That also has given her just a full year to work on her UFC debut, prepare for the things that a mixed martial artist is going to try to do to her in the octagon. Uh, give me Lisboa in the upset here. I'm going to say it goes to a decision. Clark has proven extremely difficult to hurt with strikes, to finish with strikes. She's been vulnerable to submissions, but again, unless she just gets mauled to the point that Lisboa can mercy tap her with another arm triangle choke, I don't see that happening. So give me Lisboa to beat up an increasingly frustrated Jesse Clark over the course of three rounds, get her hand raised in, you know, in her UFC debut. And it won't exactly be the Alex Pereira is coming for Israel Adesanya vibe, but expect the UFC to be beating the drum about her past competition with Shevchenko uh, if and when she does win. Next up at UFC Charlotte is a welterweight matchup between Brian Battle and Gabe Green. Battle, the 28-year-old Charlotte native, hometown fighter, is 8-2 and two overall. He is 3-1 and one since joining the UFC as the middleweight winner of the 29th season of The Ultimate Fighter. He won his first three fights in the UFC over castmates Gilbert Urbina and Treshawn Gore, then a sensational head kick knockout of Takashi Sato last August before suffering his first UFC loss last December at UFC Fight Night Cannoneer versus Strickland, where he was thoroughly out-wrestled uh, to a unanimous decision lost by Renat Fakradinov. Battle will look to get back on track against Green. The 30-year-old Californian is 11-4 overall. He is 2-2 two two in the UFC. He uh, last fought last July at UFC 276, the same card as Jesse Clark, where he came out on the wrong end of a unanimous decision against Ian Gary, who appears later up this card. Uh, so two gentlemen looking to bounce back from losses. Green is a slight to moderate favorite to get it done. He is minus 130, battle out there around plus 100 or plus 105 as the underdog. Worth noting that battle is a nice nod to regional relevance here. When the UFC is putting on cards 40, 45 uh, weekends a year, it gets harder to match fighters up with their families, friends, loved ones, teammates, whatever. But there are only a few fighters that I can think of from North Carolina in the UFC. There's Brian Battle, uh, Derek Brunson, Jamie Pickett. I'm sure there are a couple others, but to be able to get battle a fight in front of his, uh, in front of his hometown, eh, it's a nice touch. Uh, in battles last fight, we saw 
where his ceiling is going to be against top welterweights. It, in and of itself, it's not a huge deal that he lost to Renat Fakradinov. I mean, Fakradinov came into that fight on what I think is a 375 fight win streak. Now it's 376. Battle was just in on the tracks of the freight train, but he got ragdolled in a way that would have led you to believe that Fakradinov was from Dagestan. Uh, got taken down emphatically every round, kind of ragdoll take uh, takedowns. Getting back to his feet got more and more difficult throughout the fight. Matt returns, wrist control, leg rides. He just got ground out by a better wrestler who was physically stronger. And unfortunately for battle, the welterweight top 10 is full of outstanding wrestlers who are physically strong, technically sound, or both. So unless something changes, battle's upside as a future top 15, top 10 fighter at welterweight is is definitely in peril. Having said that, Gabe Green isn't the kind of guy that's uh, going to do that to him. Green is a bit of a brawler. He's a generally entertaining guy, comes forward, throws hard with both hands. His record is deceptive. You look at it, he's got a lot of submissions, but a lot of those are early in his career against very overmatched competition. At the UFC level, he's really an entertaining come-forward brawler who has decent power but not huge one-shot power. Uh, and I think Green kind of plays into uh, Battle's skills here a, a little bit. Battle is at his best when he is the better wrestler, or at least when the wrestling is kind of a stalemate or a push, and he can choose his spots to bring the fight to the ground. Uh, he's much more comfortable when he can dictate the distance on the feet and, again, choose when the fight goes to the ground, employ some slick grappling that, that he has. Here, I'm kind of leaning towards a, a second upset in a row because I picture Green coming forward and kind of obliging battle with the battle that he wants. Uh, Battle's going to be the taller fighter with greater reach. Again, he's usually all right at uh, leveraging a reach advantage when he has it. Green, who's going to come forward with uh, a lot of punches and not the straightest punch, is going to come uh, forward like swinging some, some hard hooks. I, I expect Battle will stay on his bicycle for portions of this fight. When things go to the ground, it will probably be a lot of fun. Both these guys uh, are decent submission artists, uh, even if it hasn't carried over for Green quite as well at the top level. But yeah, give me Battle to pull this one out. Uh, Delight the hometown crowd. I'm going to say Battle wins wins this in the third round of a back-and-forth fight by submission. We head now to the women's flyweight division for a long-delayed, long-rescheduled matchup between ji Yun Kim and Mandy Baum. This is one of the fights on this card that Keith and I already previewed because this was supposed to take place all the way back on February 4th at the... UFC Vegas 68, whatever that was. It was the Lewis versus Spivak card. It was the card that featured all the UFC Road to Asia finals. Uh, so you can tell how long it's been because the second batch of Road to Asia fights, like the second season, is starting in a couple weeks. Uh, at any rate, it made sense because that card should have been UFC Seoul. It was full of Asian fighters, specifically it had a ton of Korean fighters. Uh, I think it may have had more Korean fighters than 
any card in UFC history, even ones that took place in Korea. Kim, of course, is Korean. The fight was uh, delayed because I believe it was Baum who got ill for that one. But for whatever reason, it was pushed for three full months. It's happening now. I'm just going to roll our preview from February. I can't speak for Keith. I don't know if his uh, pick would have changed uh, between then and now. I'm guessing it wouldn't have. Mine has not. Worth mentioning that uh, when I talk about the odds here, the odds have tightened up quite a bit. Back in February, Kim was a minus 280 favorite up to minus 300 some places. Bum coming in around plus 200, plus 220. That has tightened up to the point where Kim is now around minus 220, minus 225, Bohm plus 175. So interesting that the line has moved in that direction, uh, considering that Bohm was the one that was responsible for this fight being pushed in the first place. But nonetheless, uh, that's that's that. Uh, buckle up and listen to this ancient footage. We head now to the women's flyweight division for a matchup between Ji Yeon Kim and Mandy Bohm. And... The nicest way I can put it is that these are two women badly, badly in need of a win. So hopefully at least one of them gets it. Uh, Kim, the 33-year-old Korean, is 9-6-2 overall. She is 3-6 in the UFC, and she is on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, she has dropped fights dating all the way back to August 2022. Alexa Grasso, Molly McCann, Priscilla Cachoeira, and most recently, last July at UFC 277, Jocelyn Edwards, to whom she dropped a split decision uh, in, in their matchup, which was actually at uh, Bantamweight. She's back in the flyweight division here, looking to snap that four-fight losing streak against Baum. The 33-year-old German, who goes by Monster, is 7-2 with one no contest overall. She's 0-2 since joining the UFC late in 2021. She dropped her debut to Ariane Lipsky in September of 2021, came back last July and dropped another decision, this time to Victoria Leonardo. That was at uh, UFC Fight Night Blades versus Aspinall last July. So she'll be looking for her first UFC win. She is decidedly not favored to do so right now kim is minus 280 bomb plus 210 for those of you who are enjoying this podcast via uh apple music or spotify or your favorite streaming platform you don't you didn't see the face keith just made there i'm gonna toss this uh to you but i i mean this is about as low level as it gets yeah that's why i'm like who the hell's putting uh kim at three to one favor like what? I'm I'm not saying that she shouldn't be the favorite, but you, I mean your stats were what would you say like three out of nine, <laughs> you know three and six in the UFC. She's three and six in the UFC. She hasn't she hasn't won in the UFC in almost three and a half years, and the people she's beaten in the UFC are all gone: Nadia Kassem, Melinda Fabian, Justine Kish. Yeah, one thing I will say that some of the names that she lost to were pretty decent losses. Like you mentioned, Alexa Grasso and Priscilla Ketchum. Like those are decent losses. So I'll give her, I give her a pass on that. Um, I just, I, I, I thought this was going to be pretty, pretty much a pick them because yeah, these are these are really low level UFC talents. Uh, I'll start with Kim. I mean, she's she's a poor athlete, very flat footed. Her hands are kind of slow, not very technically, defensively. She keeps her chin high in the air. Uh, she gets hit a lot. She doesn't have like 
good head movement to get really inside. Uh, I mean, her last fight, shooting against Jocelyn Edwards, and again, that's not a fair comparison because she's such a different fighter than Mandy Baum. But you know, she really just going over over a game. She struggled to get inside on on Jocelyn. She really struggled with the length. Um, she also had really uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic. I don't know what the word I'm trying to use. I can't even say it. Uh, just she, unlike herself, she she had really low volume in, in that fight against Edwards. She usually her thing is she wins with volume. Um, she usually has a busy jab. She's definitely a headhunter. Uh, we talked about this in the past. She hardly ever throws any kicks. Hardly ever goes to the body. She does like to follow, you know, her shots. You know, follow her jab into the pocket and unload big shots. For a smaller fighter, I know she moved up in weight last fight, but she does have underrated pop. Like I think that's probably the best part of her game. And she's willing. She's shown toughness. She's willing to eat a shot to kind of land some of her own. She can bat on the clinch a little bit, though. I was surprised that that Alexa Grasso, who's not really known for her clinch fighting, beat her up there. She's a weak wrestler, like weak defensive wrestler. I go all the way back to the Antonina Shevchenko fight, like where Shevchenko was taking her down, which is never, <laughs> never a good. Making, uh, making Antonina Shevchenko look like Tatiana Suarez out, out there. Yeah, like that's never, <laughs> never a good sign. Uh, Manny Baum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just cut that's it we're done <laughs> Randy Baum. Uh, so 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 i like actually i do like some things about her she's got some good good volume uh, i'd say she's some strong boxing good hand speed pretty accurate she's she's likes to try to beat her opponent to the point of attack nice jab uh, but again similar like against victoria leonardo she was seriously gun shy which which is not a good thing when you're you kind of need volume. You don't you, you know you're not a big power puncher. Uh, she does have some defensive holes. She hangs her hands low. Uh, I don't trust her chin. She was dropped twice by Ariana Lipsky, who isn't really known for being a power puncher, and it's a loss that hasn't aged well at all. Uh, if she gets inside, she can grind a little bit. Though she was out muscled by Victoria Leonardo in her last fight, but Victoria Leonardo is like historically strong <laughs> you know like that's that's her game yeah uh there's i mean there's not much on the ground like i haven't seen that much from bomb she really just wants to stand on the feet uh this fight stinks so bad that i did tape study for this fight <laughs> earlier in the week and i forgot about it like <laughs> like i um i'm not high on either fighter at all uh the loser will likely be on the cut list oh dude i mean uh, what's her name? Uh, Kim was on our cut list last time. She lost four in a row. And we were uh, we assumed she was gone. I guess she got a break because it was at bantamweight. But yeah, yeah. Yikes. And they both looked really bad in the last fight. They both looked gun shy. Uh, I'm going with the pretty big underdog. Then I'm, I'm taking Bomb. I, I actually think she's the more technically sound fighter. I don't think she has as many defensive holes. I say we have a back and forth boxing affair, and I think she wins it. Give me bomb and uh, I guess an upset. Well, Keith, uh, picking the two to one underdog uh, here in the, well, I mean it's high stakes for them. It's not real high stakes for the division as a whole, but I get that, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if if bomb. I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised if if bomb pulls this out. It honestly, the thing that would surprise me most out of this fight is if it was really entertaining. Because on top of everything else. Two two women who just showed themselves to be really gun shy, as you mentioned in, in their last fight, could possibly add up to 
just a, a rough 15 minutes of, of viewing. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Kim here at the underdog. I, I, I guess I'm a chicken, but uh, Kim has at least shown that she can hang and be competitive with UFC level flyways and bomb really has yet even to show that. I mean, you mentioned that the Lipsky loss hasn't aged well. That's Lipsky's only win in the UFC in like the last three years. When you're Lipsky, when you're somebody's only win in the UFC in three years, yeah, that's the definition of not aging well. Uh, yeah, give me give me Kim by decision here, just by I guess deciding to pull the trigger enough to to pull out these rounds. Next up on the UFC on ABC Four undercard, we have the other matchup that. Keith and I already previously previewed this one, a lightweight matchup between Natan Levy and Pete Rodriguez. This one was supposed to take place just two weeks ago at the UFC fight night, the song versus Simone one. It was UFC Vegas. Was it 72? Whatever it was just two weeks ago. So here I'm more confident that Keith's pick is the same as it would have been uh, two weeks ago. Mine certainly is. So again, just, Enjoy the ride as I feed you some slightly uh, old, older footage here. Next up, the lightweights take the cage as it is Natan Levy versus Pete Rodriguez. Levy, the 31-year-old Israeli by way of Las Vegas, is 8-1 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 2-1 since joining the UFC out of the fifth season, fourth season of Dana White's Contender Series, the 2020 season. He debuted with a loss to Rafa Garcia. Since then, he has strung together back-to-back -to -back wins over Mike Breeden and Gennaro Valdez. The most recent of those, the Valdez win, was a unanimous decision at UFC on ESPN Thompson versus Holland last December. He will look to make it three in a row at the expense of Rodriguez. The 26-year-old Arizona native is 5-1 and one overall. He is 1-1 one and one in the UFC. Uh, debuted... Last January, UFC 270, pretty big ask. They threw him in there against Jack Della Maddalena. He made it all of three minutes before getting TKO'd. He came back in October uh, against my good friend Mike Jackson. Uh, there, Rodriguez <laughs> became uh, Jake Shields' favorite fighter by uh, yeah. knocking Jackson out cold in about a minute and a half. <laughs> Uh, Just talk about extreme differences <laughs> going from Madalena <laughs> to Mike Jackson. Yeah, okay. You you know, you go from uh, probably one of the eight or nine best welterweights in the UFC to uh, you know, yeah. Mike, Mike was the worst welterweight in the UFC. All right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, enough about the welterweights because this is Rodriguez dropping to the weight class where uh, he has felt he belonged all along, uh, 155, and he's going to go out there and try to prove it against Levy. He is not favored to get it done Uh Rodriguez plus 225 or so Levy minus 275 is one of the bigger favorites on the card. And I got it. I got to tell you Pete Rodriguez. If this was like 2005 and Mike Goldberg was introducing these fighters, this would be one of those fights where he's like, Natan Levy is a former Israeli national judo champ who did this, this, and that. Yeah, Pete Rodriguez yeah, yeah. has very heavy hands. <laughs> that was you know, a good like, impression. That was a really good impression. Thank you. Very heavy hands is like what he had to say. Coming up next. Yeah, that's what that's what Goldberg would always say when you're a guy who's pretty fresh out of the regionals. He had a bunch of knockouts there, and he's not sure whether you're actually any good or not. That's how I feel about Pete Rodriguez. Now, yeah, having said that, he's I mean he's 26 now. You know. He was 25 last time he fought. He's 26. 
plenty of upside. He's dropping to a weight class that I think will be more appropriate for his build. Because honestly, at 170, he looked like a slightly pudgy welterweight or lightweight. You know, he looked like he could lose a, a few pounds. So I'm interested to see how he looks here. But out of him, I do see that he, I mean, he hits, he hits stupid hard. Uh, but he has a pretty limited repertoire of ways to get that power onto somebody's chin. He's going against a guy in Levy that's going to be naturally bigger. Is a, I mean, a fairly rudimentary striker himself, but I think Levy will probably be able to get Rodriguez to the ground. I don't have a good idea of what his ground game looks like because none of his fights have gone to the ground unless somebody was already badly hurt. So I have no idea what his defensive wrestling really looks like because the only people that have been trying that have tried to take him down like had their brains knocked halfway out of their skull uh, at, at the time. So in the presence of a ton of unknowns, I understand why Levy is such a strong favorite. But if Rodriguez goes out there and plunks him in the first round, I won't be that shocked. But I don't think that's the main chance. I, I think the, the main chance here is that Levy is able to guard his chin he takes Rodriguez down and it turns out that Rodriguez can be exploited on the ground. Uh, give me Levy by a second round stoppage could be a TKO on the ground could be a submission. I'll say TKO ground and pound in, in the second round, but uh, definitely learn a lot about both guys here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I'll start with Rodriguez. Same exact thing. Everything you said, I mean, he's, he's got Four stoppage wins in the first round. We've only seen him go past the first round once in his career, so uh, there's not a lot of tape on him. And then it's like you said, it's 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 extremes. Like to say, hey, he's not as good as Jack Madalena, but he's better than Mike Jackson. That's that's literally that's, all, but like all but about yeah. ten welterweights on the yeah. on the entire planet. Like yeah, right that's the, yeah, that saves about I don't know two billion people. Like yeah. somewhere somewhere between those two guys. Like, uh, be like, oh yeah, the guy lives in America, somewhere between Maine <laughs> and Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's like, he's he's very aggressive. He's got some tight boxing. He cuts angles well. Uh, I love that he works the body. Uh, he switches stance in the mid com, which I like. He hits ridiculously hard. Is you know for first round stoppages, and obviously I'm a little worried about his cardio because you know we mentioned only one fight going past the first round, and again, like you said, I don't know jack shit about his ground game. Uh, Levy, Southpaw, he's got a very karate style. Hangs his, hand, hangs his hands low, which he might want to change going against someone like Rodriguez. But he's got quick hands. Uh, I like his straight left. Uh, I like his check right hook when he gets pressured. He throws a lot of combinations. I'd say he has plus power. Uh, he, he tends to load up a little bit, making it easy to see the power punches coming. Uh, he also throws a lot of stupid spinning attacks. Uh, he's very athletic, so it, it flows a lot better for him than other people, but that's something I'd be worried against someone like Rodriguez. He does, does something like that, then all of a sudden he eats a right hand and he's out. Uh, he, he loves his kicks. He's got like a hook kick, an axe kick that is kind of pointless, but uh, he likes teep kicks, which he's used a lot against wrestlers and stuff. Uh, he has been rocked in some fights, and you mentioned the wrestling game of him. Like, despite not being known for wrestling, he's a pretty good wrestler. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. He, and he's hard to take down. He looks to stop takedowns, and he, he's got a very submission-based thing where he's looking for guillotines, looking for Kamaras, uh, which helps him get back up if he's taken down. If he's on top, I, I like that he works position, slowly works. Uh, he has some good back takes. He, he has a submission threat. He can get subs from top and bottom. 
it, it's a tough fight because it's so hard to know what we have in Rodriguez. Uh, you, you know, he's he's fights a shot and most of his wins against bums. So because of that, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with Levy. Uh, I'm not high on Levy, but one thing I can say, at least I know he's UFC level, and I'm not sure if I know Rodriguez is UFC level. So, again, I think the best avenue of victory is the same way you said, add in a lot of takedowns uh, or stay out of the kicking range, use a lot of movement, make Rodriguez chase him. I kind of think that's what we get. Give me Levy. I'm going to say, again, I don't know enough about Rodriguez, so I'm going to say he makes it all the way to the scorecards. Give me Levy by decision. All right. The UFC Charlotte prelims soldier on with a light heavyweight matchup between Carlos Blackjack Olberg and Eeyore the Duelist Pateria. Olberg, the 32-year-old New Zealand native, is 7-1 overall. He is 3-1 since joining the UFC out of the fifth season of Dana White's Contender Series. He lost his UFC debut way back uh, just a little over two years ago at UFC 259. Uh, second round knockout at the hands of Kennedy Zetchikwu. Uh In a fight that he had been winning, had been doing well, but made a mistake, got caught, got knocked out. Since then, he is perfect with a back-to-back-to-back wins over Fabio Charant, Tavon Tukwi, and Nick Negamariano. The most recent of those, the Negamariano fight, was last November at UFC 281. If you see a pattern here where three of his four UFC appearances have been on Israel Adesanya cards. That is, of course, because he is a teammate and friend of the last style bender. Uh, he'll look to make it four in a row and, frankly, declare himself a contender in the wide open light heavyweight division at the expense of Pateria. The 26 year old Ukrainian is 19 and three overall. He is an even one and one since joining the UFC out of the 2022 season of Dana White's Contender Series. So that's season six. He lost his debut uh, via second round TKO to Negamariano, came back in January at UFC 283 and punched the sad, sad ghost of Shogun Hua into hopefully retirement and oblivion in the first round. So he's looking to make it two in a row most decidedly not favored to do so. Olberg, one of the biggest favorites on the card. He is minus 330 right now. Pateria available plus 250. It's obvious why Olberg is such a big favorite here. MMA math is extremely fallible. In a lot of cases, it's actively deceptive, but here it's pretty indicative. Both of these gentlemen have fought Nick Negamariano. Olberg lit him up. Pateria got lit up by him. And the way that they each interacted with him goes to how this fight is likely to look. Because Pateria in fighting Negamarianu, he was the taller guy, the rangier guy. Negamarianu is, frankly, he's he's a hard-hitting brawler. But he looked pretty technical against Pateria because Pateria was wild, uh, throwing single shots, getting countered cleanly. Uh, Negamariano knocked him out, but he hurt him numerous times before then. Uh, Pateria just never really looked comfortable in that fight. And then it's hard to tell much from a first-round knockout of Shogun Hua in 2023. I'm, I'm sorry. just it, he, doesn't, he doesn't get many points for that. The way he lost to Nick Negamariano 
leads you to believe he's going to be a sitting duck for what Olberg does. Uh, Olberg, I've said this on previews before, he looks like a villain from a 90s, early 2000s kickboxing movie. I would also accept he looks like what would have happened if Dwayne The Rock Johnson had gone into kickboxing instead of American football or professional wrestling because he's this tall, chiseled, devilishly handsome Polynesian guy. Uh, I mean, he's even got the little eyebrow thing he does. He looks like somebody that's trying to beat up the good guy and steal his girlfriend in a kickboxing movie. Uh, he has that certain brashness and, and arrogance to him. Star power is clearly there for the taking if he can just keep winning fights. Uh, in terms of his actual skill set, despite the fact that, you know, he's a tall, long-limbed striker, he's a teammate of Israel Adesanya, uh, they're both very good kickboxers, but he's much more of a bread-and-butter, high-level kickboxer. There's not as much of the Matrix-esque creativity. Honestly, his skill set has more in common with Alex Pereira than it does with Israel Adesanya. You know, he has all the tools in his arsenal, but his punches with both hands are his real knockout weapons. Uh, tons of power in, in both hands. Uh, even his jab is just a snap your head back jab, like a couple of jabs and a couple of low kicks. And Fabio Charmant did not want anything to do with this man to the point that Henry Hoof apologized to Olberg in the cage because his guy didn't engage. Uh, the people that have engaged with Olberg have ended up staring at the lights. That includes Nega Mariano, of course. And yeah, I expect, I expect that that's what's going to happen here. Pateria, he has good individual skills. He hits hard. Uh, a lot of his individual strikes have good technique, but you know, sometimes struggles to throw in combinations, sometimes struggles to bring his hands back to his chin. His footwork can be poor. Uh, he's a physically strong guy and can wrestle, but has trouble in transition from striking to wrestling to grappling. He has all the parts of a pretty good light heavyweight skill set and just has struggled to put them together in any kind of coherent way. It's not an exact comparison, but you can sort of see the parallels to another once young Ukrainian like Nikita Krylov, where he had individual high-level skills, but just had a penchant for losing fights in, in terrible ways. Uh, maybe that'll be Pateria for a while. Because in spite of Pateria having two or three times as many professional MMA fights as Olberg does, Olberg feels like a more complete product because he's a guy that knows what he's good at, has the confidence to lean into it, has the wits to avoid the situations where he knows he's not may not be the better fighter or may not have the advantage. That's all it's going to take to put away Pateria here. Uh, Pateria is tough. He made it to the second round against Nega Mariano, despite getting lit up multiple times. So, <sighs> but Olberg is just so much more a predator than, yeah, you know what? Give me Olberg by first round knockout here. If Pateria decides that discretion is the better part of Valor and just doesn't engage, I guess we could get another Charant fight for Olberg, but that has not been Pateria's disposition. He seems to be a guy that wants to march forward and live by the sword or die by the sword. I just expect he's going to die by the sword here. Uh, give me Olberg to just throw in combination, hurt Pateria with 
pretty much everything right off the bat. When Pateria comes and throws at him, he's going to counter naked leg kicks with punches. He's going to counter punches with punches, uh, hurt Pateria early, often, and end this thing in the first round. We head next to the men's bantamweight division for a match between Cody Stamen and Douglas Silva the Andrade. It's practically a mirror match. It's two gentlemen who have found a home as stocky bantamweights after previously having plied their trade as extremely stocky featherweights. Stamen, the 33-year-old Michigan native, is 21-5-1 overall. He's 7-4-1 in the UFC. He's 5-3-1 since dropping to Bantamweight. He is currently on a two-fight win streak. Uh, last time out was in January at UFC 283, where he took a unanimous decision over the debuting Luan Lacerda. Prior to that, he knocked out Eddie Wineland in just a minute. That was last June at UFC on ESPN, Cater versus Emmett. Prior to that, he had been on a three-fight losing streak, though in his defense, those three losses were to Jimmy Rivera, Marab Dwalishvili, and Saeed Nurmagomedov. So a uh, uh, difference in level of competition leads to a difference in results for Stamen. Nonetheless, he's looking to make it three in a row, and standing in his way will be Deandraj. The 37-year-old Brazilian is 28-5 and five with one no contest overall. He is 6-5 and five in the UFC. He is 5-3 and three at Bantamweight. He lost his last time out, dropped a unanimous decision to Saeed Nurmagomedov last July at the UFC on ESPN Dos Anjos versus Fazeev card. Prior to that, he had won back-to-back fights over Gaetano Perello and Sergei Morozov. Odds here uh, do moderately favorite Odds do moderately favor Stamen. He is minus 150, DeAndraj plus 120. This it feels insulting to call it low level. We are talking about arguably the most talented division in the sport, one of the deepest divisions in the UFC. So understand that when I say this is kind of a low level bantamweight matchup, it's low level by the standards of a high level division. But Stamen right now, he's coming into this fight off of back-to-back wins, but there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there. The the 2022 version of Eddie Wineland was about as shot a fighter as I've seen in the UFC, except for maybe the 2023 version of Shogun Hua in recent memory. And then his last win, Lacerda is a moderately intriguing prospect out of LFA who was making his debut. It'll remain to be seen how well that win ages for Stamen as Lacerda goes on. But the other problem is that I actually thought Lacerda won the fight and uh, glancing at MMA decisions, it looks like about two thirds of people did. So Stamen arguably got a little bit of a gift over a fighter that we're not even sure if he's going to have staying power in the UFC. Uh, Nonetheless, Three wins in a row is three in a row, and he's favored to get it done against DeAndraj here. I mentioned that these guys are both stocky, blocky, bantamweights. It is especially so in the case of DeAndraj. He's even shorter than Stamen. He is built like a tank. At featherweight, that was even more pronounced. Earlier in his UFC run, I mean, goodness, this guy's been in the UFC for nine years now. Uh, He's had a couple of lengthy layoffs due to injuries that required surgery and so forth. Like, he was gone for... 18 months or more multiple times in his UFC run. But even though 135 is probably a more suitable weight class for his physique, 
to drop to 135 at age 34 or so, that's, I mean, that's a tall order. We are just, the smoke is just clearing now from UFC 288, where we are asking ourselves, was Henry Cejudo at age 36 too old to stay in title contention at, at 135 pounds? This is a division where we saw the wheels fall off of Dominic Cruz in uh, startling fashion past his 34th, 35th birthday, age, injuries, and other self-inflicted health health issues have uh, hamstrung TJ Dillashaw as he crossed over that, that age line. Jose Aldo was smart enough to get out before that really, really started to happen. So it, it's worth asking if at 37 in a speed kills division with the history of injuries already behind him, if all the wheels aren't about to fall off for uh, Douglas Silva de Andrade here. If they haven't completely fallen off, this is a sneaky good matchup for him. Uh, in his prime, you know, very quick athletic guy with stupid hard power, like a, a rare level of one punch power for those lower weight classes. You, you know, you look at his record, he's 28 and five, and he's got 20 knockouts. And that's, that's legit. He, he has the power to hurt people with uh, either hand with a single shot. And Stamen is exactly the kind of fighter who is perfectly willing to oblige him with that kind of fight. Having said that, I don't think Silva's in his prime anymore. I don't think he's close enough to his prime to, to have any confidence in him here. He lost to Nurmagomedov in his last fight prior to that. Again, he had won two in a row over Pirello and Morozov. Same as with Stamen's two-fight win streak. If you poke at it, it's it's pretty easy to poke holes in it. Pirello is a guy that, if he hasn't been dropped by the UFC already, he's on the cut list his next time out. And then Morozov, fair play to DeAndrage. He did the DeAndrage thing and turned around the entire fight with a single huge punch. But he was getting tooled up until then. Uh, he had taken... a a 10-8 first round, just been victimized by Morozov in the first round, had a horrible cut opened up on him, you know, knocked down, hurt badly. Fight could have been stopped in the first round, could have been stopped between rounds on that cut, and he came out and just stunned Morozov with a single punch and pursued the finish and, and got the the comeback win uh, from there. Like, I was I was at that fight. It was absolutely sensational down here in, in Houston. Somebody that has that kind of power, He's always going to have it in his back pocket. Power's the last thing to go, but that's not a blueprint for a replicable path to victory, even against someone like Stamen, who's probably going to serve his chin up on a platter to, to DeAndrade at least a couple times during the fight. Uh, I expect this is going to be a front runner, early front runner for fight of the night. Should be fireworks for as long as we get it. DeAndrade will have his chances because Stamen's going to wade forward throwing uh, everything hard, not going to try to wrestle unless he absolutely has to. So DeAndrade will have his chances, but Stamen as the slightly larger, younger, fresher fighter, I think it's more likely that if DeAndrade does catch him, Stamen is able to recover. And if not, like if he doesn't catch him with the one huge shot, a war of attrition favors Stamen here. So give me Stamen by decision in, again, an absolute banger of a fight and it'll just continue to be one of yeah, a, a sneaky low key. What might've been story for Deandraj, a guy that came to the UFC with uh, 
a, a good amount of potential, some impressive tools, and just things have never quite broken right for him for a bunch of reasons largely beyond his control. Next up at UFC Charlotte is the obligatory unranked heavyweight slobber knocker, well, other than the, the main event. It is Carl Williams versus Chase Sherman. Williams, the 33-year-old Atlanta native, I believe he was born in Alabama, so this is very much a deep south battle here, but uh, 33-year-old Atlanta native is 8-1 and one overall. He is 1-0 since joining the UFC out of the 2022 season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, took a unanimous decision over Jimmy Lawson on the Contender Series last September to earn his spot in the UFC. He debuted in March against uh, Wuka Streski. That was at UFC Fight Night, Jan versus Dwalishvili, and took a unanimous decision over Dresky as well. So uh, he'll look to keep his octagon record perfect at the expense of Sherman, who uh, whose octagon record is definitely not perfect. 33-year-old from D'Iberville, Mississippi, is 16-11 and 11 overall. He is 4-10 and 10 across multiple stints with the UFC. He's 2-5 and five this time around since rejoining the promotion in 2020, kind of, it, right when the UFC resumed operations from COVID, he got the call back for a match with Ike Villanueva. He's been back ever since. Uh, he lost his last time out. It was a unanimous decision loss to Waldo Cortez Acosta at UFC Fight Night, Zechaku versus Kudalaba last November. Prior to that, he'd knocked out Jared Vandera in the first round. Uh, sorry, he had knocked out Jared Vandera in the third round, uh, putting the uh, brakes on a four-fight skid. Uh, in the middle of his most recent UFC run. So, uh, Sherman, rough sledding. I I've speculated on our Shillin and Duffy previews as well as recaps before that I this guy's got some sort of special magic to be able to still be in the UFC with a 4-10 and 10 mark, but there's no real magic. It's just the subtle and underrated magic of being a heavyweight and being willing to step up and fight anyone. So, uh, congrats to Chase Sherman on, on continuing to pick up checks in the world's premier mixed martial arts organization. Uh, he's going to pick up a check on Saturday. He is not favored to have his win bonus added to it as Williams is, I believe the biggest favorite on the card. No, Williams is not the biggest favorite on the card, but he is one of the biggest favorites on the card. He is minus 400 Sherman plus 300. I always feel as though, I'm needlessly harsh on Chase Sherman. I feel bad about it. I know people who know him. He appears to be a great guy. But every time he fights, I kind of say the same thing. The book hasn't changed. If you lined up every heavyweight in every major organization in the world and showed somebody who'd never seen a mixed martial arts fight to line them up in order of how good he, they thought they were, Sherman would probably end up in the top quarter of them, top 20%. I mean... He's a 6'4", 255-pound guy who's not fat. I mean, depending on when you catch him, he's got almost a six-pack. Uh, he, he looks like you would expect an elite heavyweight fighter to look, and it just hasn't translated. Uh, in practice, in the cage, he's a pretty high-volume striker with low power per shot. He's capable of knocking someone out. I mean, he has a TKO of Jared Vandera, but that was late in the third round of a war of attrition where he hit him a ton of times. Uh, did poor defensive wrestler struggles on the ground. Basically Sherman is okay at just about everything as a mixed martial artist. 
but whatever his opponent is better at doing than him invariably ends up uh, like they, they're they able to just run right through that hole. Against Alexander Romanov and Jake Collier, he got badly out-wrestled and badly out-grappled. One of Sherman's better qualities is he has a decent straight jab and the willingness to throw it, which is surprisingly rare at heavyweight. When he ran into somebody with a better jab, Cortez Acosta, he got out-jabbed uh, and generally outstruck over the course uh, of three rounds. It's just, it's really tough for Sherman to find wins in in the UFC heavyweight division. And here, he's a decent, low-power boxer at heavyweight going against someone in Williams that is a good boxer with much superior power. This is... I. This is a bad matchup for Sherman, even by the standards of bad matches, matchups for Sherman. Uh, Williams, he's a big guy. For someone who's a former light heavyweight, he cuts a big figure in the octagon. I, I, we're going to be talking about Gileton Almeida in a little while here. He doesn't cut quite the same figure in, you know, swimwear that Almeida does. But he's a guy that you look at him and you're like, how did you ever make 205? He's a big guy, good hand speed, good power. On, on his shots, he has a nice jab. Uh, his one-two, just his you know, jab and his right cross uh, are powerful. He's able to throw kicks, but at this stage in his MMA development, he's definitely more of a boxer who can throw kicks than a kickboxer. Uh, Williams' ground game, it's been, it hasn't been tested much lately, but the last we saw of it, it is a bit of a liability. That's something that Sherman could potentially take advantage of. Sherman's not a great wrestler in any phase, but he's a little better offensive wrestler than he is a defensive wrestler. Just I, partly because he is a big, strong guy and partly because most MMA heavyweights who aren't great wrestlers are, are bad wrestlers. Uh, so if Sherman decides to wrestle Williams, maybe this fight takes on a new complexion, but as it is, I think Sherman's just going to get the worst of exchanges on the feet until Williams really starts hurting him. And then things are going to go downhill and go downhill quickly. Uh, give me Williams by second round TKO here in a fight that I think will kind of look depressingly predictable once the first few exchanges on the feet play out. Next up at UFC on ABC four. And at least as the card is constituted as of the beginning of fight week, the top prelim is a welterweight matchup between Matt Brown and Court McGee. This fight is sponsored by beef jerky, chewing tobacco, old cowboy boots, rusty nails. I had insert metaphor here. This is two extremely grizzled dudes uh, that are going to give us a grizzled dude fight. Brown, the 42-year-old Ohio native, is 23 and 19 overall. He is 16 and 12 since joining the UFC as one of the standout cast members of the seventh season of The Ultimate Fighter. He lost his last time out and has lost three of four. Uh, his most recent appearance was a split decision uh, loss to Brian Barbarena last March at UFC on ESPN Blades versus Dawkins. Uh, prior to that, he had lamped Diego Lima, but that was all the way back in June of 2021, so almost two full years ago. Brown's once busy schedule has kind of yielded to a once a year type thing as he's crossed over into his late thirties and into his forties. He's talked openly about retirement for several times now talked about wanting to retire on an Ohio card. 
that hasn't lined up for him thus far, but, uh, you know, any fight now could be his last. Again, the guy is 42 and eh, has proven about as much as there is for, you know, a, a man of his skills to prove uh, in the UFC. He'll be taking on McGee. The 38-year-old Utah native is 21 and 11 overall. He is 10 and 9 since joining the UFC as the middleweight winner of the 11th season of the Ultimate Fighter. He is 6 and 7 since dropping to welterweight, which was probably his better weight class all along. Uh, he lost his last time out as well, got flatlined by Jeremiah Wells last June at that UFC on ESPN Cater versus Emmett card. Prior to that, he had ground out surprising uh, unanimous decision wins in back-to-back -back fights against Claudio Silva and Ramiz Brahimai. Odds here, uh, favor McGee. He is minus 200. Clean two-to-one favorite. Brown plus 170 or so on the comeback. In the event that this ends up being the farewell fight for one or both of these men, uh, ah, worth taking a moment to talk about them. Matt Brown, if you are familiar with my work at SureDog.com at all, one of my recurring features uh, since I've been with the site is a series called the Mixed Martial Arts Hall of Fucking Awesome. It is kind of my own Hall of Fame, an alternate Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame the sport deserves for fighters that were fucking awesome regardless of how great or accomplished they might have been you know we've got people in there from championship level fighters like Mirko Krokop and Megumi Fuji all the way down to people that yeah, weren't all that good even at their best like you know Drew McFedries Matt Brown is as much of a shoe-in candidate for the Hall of Fucking Awesome as there is in the sport right now. All I'm waiting for is 365 days from his announced retirement or his last fight, and that dude is in. Matt Brown is fucking awesome. Uh, it's kind of funny because a decade or more ago, he was a kind of middling cast member on The Ultimate Fighter, mostly famous for getting real mad at Jeremy May for messing with his chewing tobacco, and today, he's an obviously very shot-looking fighter. But in between, he was the terror of the welterweight division for a couple of years. And he actually got to within a fight of a title shot. He fought Robbie Lawler in 2014. And the winner of that fight was going on to a shot at, uh, would have been Johnny Hendricks at the time. Lawler won a decision. Lawler went on to, you know, re reclaim uh, his glory. But... Brown was a top 10, even top five fighter for a minute there. And he did it without sacrificing just being a mean, nasty, and violent guy. He started describing himself as a technical brawler at some point in the mid-2010s. And from another fighter that could have come across as pretentious or silly or meaningless. But in Brown's case, it actually made a lot of sense. He took the basic... Muay Thai skill set. You know, he came up as a Muay Thai influenced fighter very clearly from his regional days. And he parlayed that into something that worked really, really well in the mixed martial arts cage. The, I mean, he was always a punisher in a uh, clinch range, like brutal knees and, and elbows. But what he got really good at doing was using footwork and kicks to herd people into his punches and vice versa. I mean, not as elegantly, 
but the same basic principles that Conor McGregor used at his very best, where he would, you know, use his kicks to run people like, you know, Dustin Poirier in their first fight right into right into like his money punch. That that was Brown. Uh, Brown's finish of Diego Sanchez, kind of his last real real highlight, real finish. That level elbow that he used to ice Sanchez against the fence. It's one of the few times that I'm willing to use the word gangster as an adjective. That was some gangster shit. Unfortunately, that style required things out of Brown that have faded. Uh, you know, he was, he, he used his foot, uh, his footwork to maximize his natural foot speed, which was never all that great, but he slowed down even more and more uh, as he's aged the chin and the recoverability that once made him again, one of the scariest guys in the sport to try to exchange with in close quarters have abandoned him. Uh, going back a couple years, his loss to Miguel Baeza, you know, he won the first round against Baeza got uh, plunked just seconds in the second round. That's a fight that the Matt Brown of 2015 would have won. He would have, uh, you know, slipped th that first punch by Baeza or just eaten it and and kept going and and won the fight. This even his last fight, his split decision lost to Brian Barbarena last March. Brian Barbarena, as a just come forward, aggressive, fairly low powered brawler, is exactly the kind of fighter that Brown would have absolutely eaten for lunch in his prime or even on the tail end of his prime, like out of his prime, but at 41, just you know, couldn't pull the trigger. Couldn't, uh, couldn't quite wade through Barbarina's fire. Like uh, he would have before. Couldn't connect as many times with as much force. Just it's, it's been a logical, it's been a logical uh, regression of his physical skills as he's aged. Like there's nothing weird about it. It's not like the guy fell off a cliff at age 32. He is, he is 42 and he's very much at, at the end of his rope uh, athletically. Yeah. So he's still got the same weapons and the same approach he always did, but a very diminished ability to put it into practice against UFC level welterweights and standing across from him. He has a guy that the skill set is different, but Otherwise, has a few things in common. I mean, not very often that you're going to get a matchup between two UFC fighters who can share stories about having died from drug overdoses and had to be like defibrillated back to life. But, you know, if you've watched any UFCs over the past 10 years, over the course of these gentlemen's careers, it always gets mentioned. Uh, McGee, I said, you know, he was the winner of Tough 11 he was open about his past substance abuse problems, even on the show. Like it was pretty, it was funny and heartbreaking at the same time. He would, you know, he said things uh, like, uh, you know, I, I, I drink two beers. And then next thing I knew I was waking up four days later, not knowing what state I was in and, and with no shirt on uh, the classic, classic uh, addict story. If you've known any, but uh, he is now pushing 40 himself by all accounts, a happy family man. I couldn't be happier for him. I spent a, a decade plus in Utah around the same time he was coming up as a regional fighter. I've seen people like him and Steve Seiler fight on 
you know, in dirt floor arenas uh, more times th than I can count. McGee is regressing in the same way as Brown in terms of his skills. But McGee was less dependent on that even in his prime. Uh, Court McGee at his absolute best, and his absolute best, I mean, his best win is 10 years ago beating Robert Whitaker, even though that fight was at welterweight. So it was in McGee's better weight class, Whitaker's worst weight class. Still, that's aged incredibly well. But McGee's best run, 2012 to 2015 or so, even then, he was one of the slowest guys in his weight division. That's only gotten more severe uh, as he's aged. But his nickname fits well. Uh, he is a crushingly strong guy. Uh, incidentally, he has the most painful handshake of any fighter I've met personally. Not not trying, just accidentally like squeezing your hand too hard. And I'm a pretty strong guy with a pretty firm handshake. I don't think of myself as having like osteoporosis bones and, and court McGee made me like want to squeal like a little girl. Anyway, uh, McGee at his best is an ultra, ultra grinder. He's uh, a boxer on the feet, willing boxer. I, for, for what it's worth, he throws nice straight punches. He's willing to throw a jab, uh, but his punches are slow. They have decent power, but they it's rare these days that he can connect enough on the feet to really make his punches start to pile up. It's all a means to an end for him. Uh, he does his best when he can get the fight to the ground. He has, he's willing to shoot from the outside, but that was never his best route to getting fights to the ground. Even when he was younger and faster here, his best route to getting a fight to the ground is generally to get, to get into the clinch, get a body lock where he can just put that, impressive strength and leverage to work throw a man down once he gets people down there he's still mean he has mean ground and pound throws nasty elbows and punches that are accurate and patient he's a good ground and pounder uh has a solid topside grappling and submission game i mean he hasn't had a he hasn't had a submission in the ufc probably since 2011 or whatever but he will try for your typical topside wrestler, strongman submissions. He'll look to frame up a Kimura. He'll look to set up an, an arm triangle choke, those kind of things. Here against Brown, if they hang out on the feet, it probably slightly favors Brown, just because Brown is more likely to hurt McGee with a single big strike and then go from there to either dominate around or finish the fight. Uh, McGee got flatlined by jeremiah wells in his last outing brown can hit that hard if mcgee happens to get in the way of something or even if brown doesn't land the, a single big shot it's at least pretty even and brown could be winning rounds on the feet uh just by exhibiting octagon control hurting mcgee around and and being the one who throws more if mcgee can get brown down it becomes much more McGee's fight. Brown is good at surviving on the ground. He's gotten good at surviving on the ground, but he's never been a great defensive grappler, been highlight reeled by a few people. At this point in his career, I don't know for a fact, but I would suspect that he is going to be susceptible to ground and pound. Uh, his chin is clearly faded on the feet. I can't think of a reason why 
it would be Sterner on the ground. So I do see why McGee is a two to one favorite here. Uh, it depresses me because I have a place in my heart for both of these fighters. And again, this could be one of those Zach Cummings versus Ed Herman double retirement fights. But uh, give me McGee here to win a decision. This is a fight that would have been a ton of fun eight years ago and maybe a fight of the night type fight here. I doubt it will be. It's probably going to be a little more slow paced and one or both gentlemen might be pretty tired by the end. But uh, give me McGee to maybe get a few opportune takedowns and at least turn it into a, a 50-50 affair on the feet, win a decision here. And uh, I just hope neither guy gets hurt too bad. The UFC on ABC4 main card opens up with a welterweight matchup between Tim Means and Alex Morono. Means, the 39-year-old uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico native, is 32-14-1 with one no contest overall. He is 14-11 and 11 with one no contest in the UFC overall. Uh, that's across multiple stints with the promotion. He had a few fights in the UFC, was released, and came back. Since returning, he is 12-9 and nine with one no contest. He is on a two-fight losing streak. He dropped a split decision to Max Griffin last October at UFC Fight Night Cater versus Allen. Prior to that, he got choked out in the second round by Kevin Holland last June at UFC on ESPN Cater versus Emmett. Prior to that, he had been on a fairly unlikely, surprising, and uh, enjoyable three-fight win streak. Uh, nonetheless, he's on a losing skid right now, looking to get back into the win column against Morono, the 32-year-old Houstonian is 22 and 8 with one no contest overall 11 and 5 with one no contest in the UFC he lost in his most recent outing that was in December at UFC 282 he was getting the better of a fun back and forth fight with Santiago Ponzinibbio when halfway through the third round Ponzinibbio landed a single punch that put Morono on skates uh gave him one of the more ludicrous punch face like expressions in recent memory, followed up with punches until the referee stepped in, picked up the TKO win. Morono objected. I understand the objection. I also understand the stoppage, not even getting into that. But uh, prior to that, he had been on a four-fight win streak, uh, ending with a unanimous decision win over Matthew Semmelsberger last July. So he'd like to get back, uh, get his momentum back in the right direction. He is favored to do so. Morono minus 210, Means plus 180. For Tim Means, everything I just said about Matt Brown and Court McGee holds true. He is a longtime reliable action fighter who, in his case, just turned 39. He'll be 40 early next year and has been on a general gradual slow decline with a couple of surprising instances of late career success as his physical gifts have slowly slipped away and abandoned them. Means's nickname, the Dirty Bird, is it's very appropriate. He's kind of just a tough, grimy fighter. Uh, Keith, if you were here, would point out that Means is one of the perfect prime examples of the tall rangy fighter who uses his height and reach like his height and his long limbs correctly and productively to be a close quarters fighter.
Generally speaking, the natural tendency is for tall fighters with long limbs to try to fight at range. Use a jab, a, you know, kicks, running away to keep the fight at their preferred range. And if they can't make that work, they end up in the Stefan Struve, Julian Arosa territory where shorter fighters are just walking in and clocking them with overhands. Uh, Means is a crafty guy. And while 6'2 and 170 pounds doesn't sound like a towering welterweight by modern standards, he still comes across taller than that in person and in the cage. And by the standards of 10 or 15 years ago when he first landed in the UFC, uh, he was he was pretty tall indeed at the time. But something about Means just, I mean, maybe just something about Means enjoys kneeing and elbowing people, but he clearly figured out that he didn't necessarily have the speed or athleticism to keep short, aggressive fighters from getting into range on him. So he just quickly turned it into a trap. Anytime a fighter tries to close with him, he initiates and forces the clinch. Uh, the clinch is his sweet spot, and he just uses good technique, his height, his leverage uh, to control those positions. Being tall and having long legs being, makes it very easy for him to land knees to the body and even to the head uh, in the clinch. Uh, he's very good at setting people up for sneaky elbow strikes once they start worrying about the knees or once you know they start worrying about the underhook or overhook on the opposite side means will sneak in an elbow he's yeah he's one of the uh one of the grimier and more effective clinch fighters in the ufc over the course of, of his career beyond that again a lot of the same bullet points that applied to brown and mcgee just things that used to be a strength for him are no longer are uh he used to be incredibly hard to hurt uh, great chin, great recoverability, good instincts to get to a safe place on the occasions he was hurt. Again, his his natural tendency to to want to initiate the clinch was a good instinct because you know if he if he got hit with something, he was good at the the desperation clinch was his version of the desperation single leg, uh, and had a good gas tank could force a, a grueling pace on people with lots of exhausting clinch exchanges and still be really fresh late in the fight. That was true as recently as, as a year or two ago, but the same as I mentioned that Matt Brown just lost a split decision to Brian Barbarena, a guy that would have been tailor-made for him to tee off on just a few years ago. That's how it felt to me when Means lost to Griffin last fall. Uh, and to his credit, Griffin is an improving fighter and, and he's a good fighter, but he's exactly the kind of fighter that uh, Means would have found a way to to beat just a couple years ago. He he was tailor made for uh, means to frustrate and hurt and and get tired and win going away, and that's just kind of abandoned them. Losing to Kevin Holland is no real shame. Kevin Holland, especially last summer, was still very much a factor in, in that division. Holland is still a very dangerous offensive fighter, and he you know caught means in a great front headlock and choked him. But the the things that means still does well and the things where his advantages are slipping don't match up well with Morono. If you're familiar with the show, if you know me at all, you know that I can't really speak objectively about Alex Morono. I, I know the guy. I like him. He lives and, you know, trains very, very close to me. I see him at local shows. We get along. Uh, I, I like Alex. 
having said that, I'll do my best to be realistic about his skills. He is a super overachiever at the UFC level. If you if you line up every welterweight in the UFC and made him do a decathlon together, Morono's coming in definitely in the bottom half, probably in the bottom quarter. Like he's not especially tall for 170. He's not especially bulky for 170. He's just he's not a he's not a big welterweight. He's not especially fast. Uh, he is very physically strong. Uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't get physically bullied even by welterweights that look a lot bigger than him. That's just something he has going on. He's a real strong dude, but he's he's not one of these jump out of the gym types. He's not uh, an NFL combine type athlete, and he has made his game go despite that. Up until a year or two ago, I would have said that he has the most underused second-degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in the UFC. I, I mean, it is ironic that he is, you know, a, a second-degree black belt, literally owns and operates a Gracie Baja location. Like, Gracie Baja Woodlands is like five miles from me. I've been there, and... No truth to the rumor that the floors there are lava. It is, in fact, an actual jiu-jitsu school, and he is, in fact, an expert grappler. But in the UFC, he is he's presented as what Matt Brown might call a technical brawler, uh, a hard-throwing boxer who does generally keep things uh, nice and tight, is willing to throw kicks, especially to fighters that use a high guard. He's a he's a smart cerebral fighter for a guy who comes out like a berserker. Uh, has good power because he does throw everything hard. Like throw, throws things with a blend of relatively tight technique and th throwing everything really hard. Having said that, in his recent run, he has shown himself more willing to embrace the ground game. Uh, going back as far as goodness, uh, a little over two years ago now, his fight with Anthony Pettis, he had Pettis in trouble on the ground and Pettis only escaped by doing the slippery Anthony Pettis thing. He beat Matthew Semmelsberger, a guy who wanted to strike and had greater reach and probably greater one shot power by out wrestling him. Like, yeah, I mean, if you want evidence of Morono's deceptively good strength for uh you know his his size look no further than him repeatedly grounding a guy in Semmelsberger who is a very big welterweight that does have that fast twitch NFL combine type athleticism so Morono has mellowed a little bit as he moves into his 30s uh he's willing to acknowledge and use his ground skills when appropriate here Morono is really just coming into his prime I don't know what his ceiling is if I'm being realistic, I don't think uh, Alex is a, a future top 15 guy in the division. Like you just have to string together too many wins in a row to even get on the radar. I'm, radar. I mean, look no further than Ponzinibbio that uh, just fought Morono. Santiago Ponzinibbio won six, seven fights in a row and was just scraping the outside of the top 10. That I, you have to be perfect for too long to to really get any attention in the welterweight division. This is the division of Leon Edwards and Bilal Muhammad putting together double digit unbeaten streaks before getting into the title picture. Uh, and Moreno has a penchant for taking 
a bad knockout loss at unexpected and inopportune times about once every four or five fights. So at welterweight in the UFC, that pretty much is going to keep you on the outside of the velvet rope of the top 15. But he's a guy, I mean, once who once told me that his goal was to get 30 fights in the UFC. And at the time, I think he had 10. He's now up to 16. It's looking more and more likely he is still winning twice as many fights as he loses. His fights are consistently very entertaining. And while he's in a lot of firefights and he does get knocked out from, from time to time, he's not taking Matt Brown, Robbie Lawler, Rory McDonald levels of welterweight uh, blood and guts attrition. So Morono feels like a guy who is just pulling into his prime and means is someone who is well past his prime and on his last legs. If this fight takes place entirely in Means's wheelhouse, where 80% of the fight takes place within two feet of the fence or, or with at least one fighter touching the fence, it is just a grueling clinch fest around the edges of the, the octagon for three rounds. I still think it plays out fairly even. Uh, Morono might still be able to land harder shots. He might still be able uh, to outlast uh, means in a battle of attrition. He might still be able to get opportunistic takedowns and take advantage of means's grappling defense. And that's in the best case scenario for means. If this takes place more like an Alex Morono fight and there's a lot of free swinging in the free space in the middle of the cage, I think that heavily favors Morono. He's a hard one-shot hitter. Means has proven that he can be hurt now. And Morono certainly, I mean, doesn't hit as hard as some of the other people that have really, really put Means on skates uh, with, with single shots. But he hits plenty hard. He throws good volume. He mixes up his strikes well. I, I, I think this fight just favors Morono anywhere it goes. Give me Alex Morono by decision here in what should be a really fun fight. It's hard for me to envision the finish coming for either man, unless it's in the third round after doing a lot of accumulated damage to the other, but that feels like the outside chance to me. Uh, I, I say Morono by decision here. Third from the top at UFC Charlotte is a welterweight matchup between Daniel Rodriguez and Ian Gary Rodriguez. The 36-year-old Californian is 17-3 and overall. He is 7-2 and since joining the UFC as an alum of Season 3 of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he won on the show. He was not immediately signed because it was back in the day when not everybody who won on the Contender Series got signed. But uh, he was signed just one or two fights later and since then uh, has been a solid presence in the 170-pound division. He did lose in his last outing that was in november at the ufc fight night rodriguez versus lemos where he got choked out in the third round by neil magny but prior to that he had strung together four straight wins over solid opposition including uh kevin lee and lee jing leong in his in his last two he'll look to get back in the win column here against the undefeated gary the 25 year old irishman by way of south florida is a perfect 11 and 0 as a professional mixed martial artist. He's 4-0 since joining the UFC as the former Cage Warriors welterweight champ. He uh, has four straight wins in the UFC going back to November 2021. They are against Jordan Williams, Darian Weeks, Gabe Green, and Song Kanan. The most recent of those, the Song fight, 
was uh just back in March at UFC 285. So uh nine weeks ago. So a fairly quick turnaround, but not ridiculously so for the 25-year-old up-and-comer. Uh Gary is a favorite here. He is minus 280, Rodriguez plus 210. Th- I like this matchup a lot. Uh Gary for the UFC to have an undefeated Irishman on their hands and be matching him this sensibly is a triumph. I'm as quick as anyone to kind of question or ridicule the UFC's matchmaking when it just doesn't make any sense when they, you know, unfairly leave fighters in holding patterns forever when they push prospects too fast that just clearly aren't ready. But in Gary, a promotion that's been looking for the next Conor McGregor for almost a decade now, for them to be bringing Gary along in this measure to fashion is sensational. Uh, at each stop along the way uh, since being signed, and he was 23 years old when he was signed, uh, he's had someone in front of him that presented challenges, but was didn't threaten to overwhelm a prospect who's still kind of getting his skill set together. What Gary does well is everything he is a huge welterweight uh you know six three long arms uh physically very strong a standout athlete uh fast hand and foot speed uh explosive good power in all of his strikes he is not a conventional wrestler in the way you think of the americans and russians that kind of clog up the top echelons of the welterweight division. Like he's not Colby Covington, Kamaru Usman, Shavkat Rachmanov, but he's an effective wrestler uh, who's putting together a, a solid offensive and defensive wrestling game for a tall man. And he is a very effective grappler on the ground. Uh, on the bottom, he's, he's active, looks to mostly looks to get back up, but you know, keeps the keeps top fighters off balance by threatening to to sweep threatening with submissions and then looks for his chance to get back up uh top position he's mean uh hasn't hasn't spent too much time there since being in the ufc he's pretty much been able to conduct a lot of his business on the feet but uh yeah he he has all the skills uh necessary i mean his nickname is the future that's a dangerous active hubris to take as your nickname look no further than macy barber who i mean she might still be the future she's only 26 or or, or 27 but the, the future's certainly been delayed uh but gary's game is coming together in the right way and honestly like sidebar seems to have a lot of the the intangibles in place it even if gary becomes a champ and becomes a superstar at a young age, you don't see a Conor McGregor train wreck coming his way. Like just a guy that has relocated his training to a solid camp in Florida. He's at, you know, Kilcliffe FC, a guy that's happily married to a, a, a woman who is a presence in his career, but also just has her own thing going on. I think it's kind of charming that he goes by a double last name. Like he calls himself Ian Gary Machado. Uh, There's no Keith here tonight. So no story time with Keith, but 
uh i have a your wife is in me dms uh story time with ben ahead of gary's first or second ufc fight i got a dm from uh his wife just pointing out a little inaccuracy that sure dog had with his record and it was you know completely cordial and pleasant exchange she's a you know uh a lovely woman but i just thought it was very charming that she had her eye out for him in in such a way that she was like oh you know this news report you know like had his number his record wrong by like one number let me find who wrote it or somebody that you know is an editor at the site and get that taken care of for him uh just little intangibles like that make me think that he's probably set up for long-term success in this sport limited only by him continuing to win and the job in front of him here is rodriguez and when i said that all of his all of gary's fights in the ufc so far have been appropriate tests this is a great appropriate test because if you want to if you want to point out any holes in Gary's game or any problems with his game again we're talking about an undefeated fighter who's been largely dominant in his fights but he has occasionally gotten overeager and been susceptible to his opponent's offense uh Jordan I mean he knocked Jordan Williams out in the first round but Williams landed on him solidly a few times just cuz Gary over overswung didn't bring his hands back, things like that. Um, <clears throat> he has been kind of deadlocked and stalemated by less physically like talented opponents like Weeks and Green before that. I mean, they shouldn't have the power or athleticism to stop Gary from doing what he wants to do. So it's just little lapses in defense and fight IQ and concentration that haven't really cost him yet, but probably would cost him if he faced a, you know, Gilbert Burns or Kamaru Usman type this weekend. Rodriguez is the perfect guy to test that because Rodriguez, again, he's seven and two in the UFC. He's a, a rising fringe contender himself, but his game is built around hurting his opponents with startling moments of offense on the feet and or taking advantage with a very opportunistic submission game. Like, I think the platonic ideal of the Daniel Rodriguez fight is probably when he finished Means uh, back in 2020, where he hurt him with a huge punch before Means could recover. And again, Means, especially three years ago, had incredible survivability and recoverability. Before he could recover, Rodriguez pounced, poured it on, guillotined him, fight was over. If he can't get the finish, Rodriguez still needs to do that often enough that he can win rounds with it. And he's successful with that. I mean, he has a number of well-deserved decision wins in the UFC where he wins rounds, not based on landing volume, just by the strike counter or by some nebulous concept of octagon control, but just because in the mind of a judge, okay, he did the more damage that round. Like he didn't control most of the round, but there was that moment where he stumbled the guy. There was that moment where he almost had the guillotine or, or whatever it was. So for a guy in Gary, whose main problem so far is individual moments of inattention uh, or individual mistakes, Rodriguez is a guy where Gary will have to be close to perfect for as long as this fight goes. And I don't know how long it will go. Gary has a couple of quick finishes, but he's also grown into a little bit more of a relaxed fighter as he's gone along so if this goes for three rounds he's gonna have to go three rounds 
without making a serious mistake. The punches that Williams caught Gary with in his UFC debut, if Rodriguez carry, uh, catches him with one of those, he might drop him. And if he just stumbles him badly, Rodriguez might chase him to the ground and uh, set up shop there. Or maybe he snatches a, a Bravo choke or a guillotine, and all of a sudden your undefeated prospect uh, is no longer undefeated. That's why I think this is a great test. But having said that, I'm sure that Daniel Rodriguez does not think he's anybody's test. Uh, as I said, he's 7-2 and two in the UFC. He is a... I mean, I don't know what he's actually ranked. I don't, but if I wrote down all the Walter Waits in the UFC right now, I'm betting I get to Rodriguez around uh, between 15 and 20. He's right outside the top 15 of one of the deepest divisions in the UFC and maybe the hardest division still to break into the top 10. He's probably ranked close to where Morono is and has the same problem as Morono. He has strung together a couple of individual. Or, sorry, strung together a couple of impressive wins in a row and then lost at an inopportune time. Against Magny in his last fight, that was just... That was a bad kind of uh, style matchup for Rodriguez because Magny, until very recently, has been incredibly hard to hurt badly, incredibly hard to put away, and just an ultimate builder, grinder. Uh, just that was, a, that was a tough ask for Rodriguez. Rodriguez is 36. Even at welterweight, that's pushing it. If he's going to make an actual run at the top 10, now's the time. And there's that at stake for him here as well. If he goes down as the guy that handed Ian Gary his first loss, especially if Gary continues to win fights and elbow his own way into the top 10, Rodriguez will follow or be pushed ahead of him. Uh, a signature win like that is almost the only thing that could help Rodriguez jump the line at welterweight. So he has high stakes here as well, and he'll have his chances. Uh, Gary's not a perfect fighter yet, just a very gifted one. But I think Rodriguez catching Gary with something big, big enough to either sway the whole fight or pick up like a 10-8 round or really compromise Gary so that he can go on to win the fight. I think that's definitely the outside chance. Uh, Gary is improving from fight to fight. He's shoring up those holes in his game. And Rodriguez, like I said, at 36 with a couple of uh, injuries in his uh, past, like a couple of injury layoffs in his past, the best we could hope for is that he is holding steady right now. And if he has started to slide a little bit, that wouldn't be the most shocking thing either. This is a card with Means and Brown and McGee showing what the late 30s and early 40s can look like for a UFC welterweight. So give me Gary to win a decision here, but I do expect him to get tested. I expect that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a possibility Rodriguez catches him with something clean, has Gary uh, hurt for a minute, forces him to regroup, but I expect Gary to be up to the test here and win a decision and take a serious step forward towards contention and perhaps stardom. The co-main event of UFC on ABC4 is a light heavyweight matchup between Anthony Smith and Johnny Walker. Smith, the 34-year-old Nebraska native, is 36 and 17 overall. He is 11 and 7 in the UFC. He is 7 and 4 since moving up to light heavyweight. We are talking about a man here who once fought as low as 170 pounds, hard as that is to imagine when looking at him today, but uh 
in the UFC, he has fought primarily at middleweight and then for the last several years, light heavyweight, where he turned into a surprising contender fighting his way all the way to a title shot against John Jones. That, of course, did not go well for him. He's had somewhat mixed results since then, but nonetheless, he's won three of his last four. Uh, he lost his last outing. That was at UFC 277 last July, where he got knocked out in the second round by Magomed Ankalaev. Of course, Ankalaev, but for some weird judging, might be your champ right now. But prior to that, he had three straight solid wins over Devin Clark, Jimmy Crute, and Ryan Spann. Smith will look to get back in the win column, confirm himself still a factor in the light heavyweight title picture against Walker. The 31-year-old Brazilian by way of Scotland, by way of Ireland, is 20-7 and seven overall. He is 6-4 and four since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series. He's on a two-fight win streak. Uh, he fought most recently in January at uh, UFC 283. That was the Teixeira versus Hill uh, light heavyweight title fight card, uh, knocking out Paul Craig in the first round before... Paul Craig had a chance to do any Paul Craig things. Prior to that, he had a first round uh, rear naked choke submission of Iwan Kudalaba. That was last September at UFC 279. Prior to that, he'd been on a two fight losing streak against uh, Tiago Santos and Hill, who of course is now your champ. Odds here, uh, favor Walker just slightly. He's minus 120 or so. Smith available out there, even money, plus 100. This fight, of course, up until the beginning of April, had been scheduled to be the headliner of UFC on ABC4. It was a five-round light heavyweight contenders fight, like not explicitly a number one contender fight, but in the mix, top winners of top five fighter type fights. And with no real explanation given, the first week of April, it was demoted to the co-main event, and the Rosenstrike versus Almeida fight was plugged in as the headliner. I have been wondering why that happened ever since. And I talked about it on my uh, independent podcast uh, today, just trying to figure out what it could be. Like Rosenstrike and Almeida is a fun heavyweight matchup, but they definitely are not ranked as high in their division as Smith and Walker are in theirs. The winner of that fight, it shouldn't be any closer to a title shot than the winner of the Smith versus Walker fight. There's no regional connection. Rosenstrike is a Dutch-speaking guy from Suriname. Charlton Almeida is super, super Brazilian. I I don't get it. And the Smith versus Walker fight was bounced down to three rounds, unlike Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns, who were in a five-round non-title fight co-main event last week at UFC 288. Smith and Walker got changed midstream from a five-round to a three-round fight. I imagine if we ever hear the reason for this, it will turn out to be something contractually related, you know, something to do with Smith's or Walker's contract, but surprising and weird. And I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here and pontificate on this, but it's weird what a raw deal Anthony Smith has gotten from the UFC in the last six months while simultaneously working their desk for them. We're talking about a guy in Smith that, was going to headline a fight night against Hill. They drafted Hill into the title shot against Glover Teixeira. And Smith found out about that while on the air covering a UFC event. I 
he was professional about it, if obviously frustrated. His coworkers at the desk were sensitive about it, but that had to suck. And then here, out of nowhere, he has another headlining slot pulled out from under him for no reason given and gets bounced down to a three-round co-main event. I don't know how he feels about it. I don't know if he feels he's getting mixed signals from uh, his uh, two-job employer, but regardless, we're here to talk about the fight. The main question to me, because skills-wise, I'll get to it in a minute and talk about the and talk about how that breaks down. But the big question is, whom does the change from five to three rounds favor, if anybody? And here's how I approach it. Two rules of thumb. I was asked about this, about the Muhammad versus Burns fight last week and answered it, even though I I was wrong on the preview. I didn't realize that it was a a five-round fight, but luckily Keith and I talked about the difference anyway a little bit. But there are two basic principles. First, and most obviously, a longer fight, whatever the format, a longer fight obviously favors the more durable fighter. And that is durable in terms of cardio and in terms of just recoverability, the intangible chin, resistance to being hurt. Uh, If, you know, that... That seems fairly obvious and self-explanatory, but in a sneaky way, a longer fight also favors the more dynamic finisher, whether on the feet, on the ground, or both. And the reason for that is, well, let's talk about the Muhammad versus Burns fight. And that one turned out a little weird. Burns seemed to suffer an an injury uh, during the fight. And I I don't know if Burns would have won, even if he'd been perfectly party inhaled the whole time. I don't know if he would have won if it hadn't been on short notice and his gas tank had had been different for him. But in Muhammad, you're talking about somebody who is extremely durable, like obviously incredible cardio, incredible pace, durable guy, but not a finisher at the UFC level for the most part against the guy in Burns who very much is. That means in a five-round fight, Muhammad has to be perfect for that much longer. And Burns has that many more chances to get one moment of fight changing offense. Uh, That's why a longer fight favors the more dynamic finisher in in a way. And look no further than fighters who've built their entire careers out of winning fights that way. Uh, Look at Antonio Rodrigo Noguera. How many of his best wins featured him getting his ass kicked for most of three rounds or most of five rounds until he found a moment of offense to turn the fight around usually a submission in his case look at Derek Lewis uh for the converse example of that for as much as he projected the image of being this kind of like lazy humorous guy who it was a running joke that oh this this time I'm really training hard that belied the fact that he's been the UFC's all-time leader in knockouts in the third round or later for years And how many of his fights was he losing until he plunked somebody late in the fight? Uh, Alexander Volkov won every minute of his fight against Lewis until the 15 seconds that he didn't. That's what I mean by saying in a five-round fight, the Lewises and Nogueras of the world have two more rounds to find one moment like that where the Volkovs, Neil Magny's, Bilal Muhammad's, uh, types 
have that much longer that they have to be perfect and not make a single mistake and not get tired. So that's the dynamic. Uh, longer fight, all else being equal, favors the more dynamic uh, offensive fighter, the, the, the finisher, and obviously longer fight will always favor the more durable fighter, the one with a better gas tank, the one who is less susceptible to single moments of fight-changing offense. You know, when you've got Antonio Nogueira's chin and his gas tank, you can make that game plan work on the best fighters in the world. Having said that, I see the line. I see what it is. I see why it is what it is, but I don't agree with it. I think most of the dynamic dynamic of this fight favors Smith. Uh, Smith has a very good gas tank at light heavyweight unless he's getting his brakes just absolutely beaten off of him. Like he was spent by the end of the Glover Teixeira fight and he was definitely worn out by the end of the John Jones fight, but that was mostly exhausted from being beaten up, not cardiovascular fatigue. And Smith is incredibly durable. I, I mean, that's the thing we learned in the Tatera fight is that he's almost too tough for his own good. I, say what you will about whose fault it was that he was sent back out there for round five after saying my teeth are falling out. But for whatever he had left in him, Smith came out and threw strikes at Teixeira and still was trying to win the fight in round five of the beatdown of, of 2020. That's Anthony Smith. He's a guy that, unless he's really, really getting it put on him, has ample cardio for three or five rounds and uh, is, generally speaking, quite durable. Walker, I will say this. Walker has surprisingly good cardio for a guy who's visibly as huge as he is. If you want to tell me that the biggest light heavyweight in the UFC is Kennedy Zechikwu or or it's Ryan Spann or it was Gilton Almeida before he moved up to heavyweight, you won't get too much of an argument for me, but give me Johnny Walker. As far as just the indefinable like multifaceted, who's the biggest guy that makes 205 and walks into the cage? Give me Walker. He's as tall as any of them. He's bulkier than most of them. He has an incredibly huge wingspan. My guess would be that Johnny Walker walks into the cage heavier than any other light heavyweight in the UFC on fight night. I don't know exactly what that number is. You know, I'll find out if he ever fights in California and I'll only find out once because California will never let him fight it light heavyweight again once they realize what percentage of his body weight he re rehydrates but yeah walker's the biggest light heavyweight in the ufc if not in the sport and considering that considering what his weight cut must look like and considering his uh fight style which is frankly speaking psychotic uh it he actually has impressive uh cardio he has made it to the end of a three-round UFC fight. He's made it to the end of a five-round UFC fight. And in both cases, he didn't lose because he was exhausted and gassed out and all the wheels fell off his wagon. He lost because he ran out of ideas. Uh, Walker has an impressive arsenal of offensive uh, tools, obviously. He hits with monstrous power. He throws, you know, all of his 
punches have murderous intent. He throws flying knees, flying kicks. Uh, he, I mean, he really is like a giant size Michel Pereira, but where Pereira has calmed down a bit, Walker barely has. He still fights like a maniac. That's going to define his ceiling in the light heavyweight division. I mean, he's such a character that if he could string together four or five wins at any point, he would have made it to a title shot already. The light heavyweight division is wide open. Like, there's no such thing almost as an undeserved uh, title shot in the, in that top 10. But he can't because he keeps running into somebody who is either just composed like Corey Anderson and isn't dazzled and amazed by the, the spinning stuff and just kind of waits for a, a hole and then plunks him with a punch. Or he just runs into somebody that can take his punch, hit him back with something, and put him down like, like Jamal Hill. So... I don't see any track to title contention for, for Walker. He's just, he's not built for that in the literal sense, as well as the mental approach sense. But here, if this were a five round fight, I'd favor Smith. Uh, Smith doesn't hit as hard on a shot for shot basis as Walker does partially because he doesn't throw as hard. And then partially because he's not nearly as big, but Smith is one of the most dangerous offensive fighters in the sport. If you talk about having all of the weapons on the feet and on the ground, Smith does. Uh, great kicks. Uh, power at his punches that's moved up as he's fought at 170, 175, 185, up to 205, fighting the best fighters in the world at 205. He, I mean, he's still capable of hurting people with strikes. Uh, he had Glover Teixeira in all kinds of trouble in, the fir- in their first round. Uh, he is, he has flaws in his defensive grappling, but he's a venomous offensive grappler, uh, just quick opportunistic back takes opportunistic, uh, front headlock series. He has snared Devin Clark, who is a good fighter in a triangle choke and just made it look basic. And that was the fight where people were questioning whether Smith had gotten overranked and was overrated and shouldn't be in the title picture anymore. He'd lost back-to-back fights to to Shara and then that terrible fight to Alexander Rakic. And he came back and showed against Clark that, no, no, I'm still a top 10 fighter. Like, yeah, that Smith has all the offensive weapons, uh, is, is a finisher on the feet, on the ground, and in transition. So if what Smith needs to do is ride out the offense from a huge wild striker, and wait for him to have a defensive lapse and take advantage of it. I feel like that's kind of tailor-made for Anthony Smith to take to take advantage of. Uh, I could see Walker obviously catching Smith with something huge, some just giant head kick out of nowhere, some big flying knee, hurting Smith bad enough to finish him. It's traditionally been hard enough to hard to hurt Smith enough with a single shot to just put the fight away like that, but. Certainly, if anyone could do it, Walker could. Walker has opportunistic submissions of his own. Certainly, he could just grab a standing guillotine and hoist Smith, a six-foot-four man, off the ground with it. He could do that. But those all feel like the outside chance to me. Uh, What I see when I see this fight is a smart, composed, dangerous offensive fighter against a wild, not very well-composed, dangerous offensive fighter and to me that that favors the the smarter fighter i i think this matchup favors smith uh 
this feels like the kind of fight where Smith will remind us just how good he is at mixed martial arts. The only other caveat I would throw out here is that Smith is an old 34. We have him down as this being his 54th professional fight. Considering that he came up in the Midwest in the early 2000s, I would I would not be surprised if there were five or 10 more fights that happened in Barnes somewhere in Nebraska or Iowa that we don't even have on his record. He'd probably say the same. And he's been in wars over the years so many times. He's taken an incredible amount of damage. I mean, I thought he might have been on his way to shot when he got to the UFC the most recent time and he was only like 30. Like, I, I was shocked that he's done as well as he has. That's got to start telling on him at some point. Uh, if it's now, that's hard to foresee, hard to predict, but it wouldn't be that shocking. So if Walker hit Smith with something that you feel like Smith would have shook off a couple years ago and all of a sudden he's on roller skates and this thing is over in a minute, MMA is a cruel mistress. But again, I won't call that until, until I see it. What I see here is, is Smith being able to, to beat Walker. And you know what? If he beats Walker, it, it, I don't think it's going to matter whether it's three or five rounds anyway. I, I'm thinking he probably catches Walker with something within the first seven or eight minutes of this fight. Uh, give me Smith to say, I'm going to say he survives a wild first round figures out Walker's timing, catches him doing something ill-advised early in the second, uh, puts him down and pounds him out on the ground for the finish. So I'll say Anthony Smith by second round TKO here. With that, we come to the main event of UFC on ABC4, UFC Charlotte, a heavyweight matchup between current contender Jairzinho Rosenstrike and rising contender Gilton Almeida. Rosenstrike. The 35-year-old from Suriname is 13-4 and four overall. He is 7-4 and four since joining the UFC just a little over four years ago. Yeah, joined the UFC in February of 2019. Started his run off with four straight wins, uh, all by knockout, culminating with that come-from-behind win against Alistair Overeem, the one where he split his face wide open with just five seconds left in the fight. That got him all the way to a number one contender's fight against Francis Ngannou. He lost that one. Since then, he's had mixed results, but nonetheless, 7-4 and four in the UFC, and coming off a win, uh, took just 23 seconds to plunk Chris Dawkins at UFC 282 last December. So uh, he'll be looking to string together a second win in a row in a division where Nobody is more than about four straight wins away from the title picture. He is still very much a factor, but standing in his way is Almeida. The 31-year-old Brazilian is 18-2 and two overall. He is 4-0 since joining the UFC out of the 2021 season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, so won his way onto the Contender Series by choking out Nazruddin Nazruddinov. Since then, he's won four straight fights, all of them by stoppage all within two rounds, three of them within one round. Uh, he came to the UFC as a light heavyweight. He fought his first fight at light heavyweight. It was against Danilo Marquez. Since then, he is 3-0 and at light heavyweight plus. He had a, a fight against Anton Tercali that was at a 220-pound catchweight. But, you know, two former light heavyweights meeting at a 220-pound catchweight, you know, whatever. I think of it as heavyweight. Anyway, uh, he's on a 13-fight win streak overall. His most recent 
appearance was in January at UFC 283, where he knocked out Shamil Abdurakimov midway through the first or uh, through the second round. This was elevated to the main event on April 4th, as I mentioned, becoming a five-round fight. And yeah, I can't really speak to the reasoning behind it, but the reasoning going forward is that this makes this feel more like a possible measuring of Almeida or Rosenstrike for title contention. You know, it's something you would want to know about a guy, you know, you wouldn't want Rosen or you wouldn't want Almeida's first five round fight to be a, a title shot. If you could avoid it, Almeida biggest favorite on the card. He is minus five twenty. Rosenstrike plus 400. First things first, uh, Gileton Almeida is fucking huge. Uh, I don't know what he's going to weigh in at on Friday. Again, he's a guy that fought back and forth at light heavyweight and heavyweight on his way up in Brazil, appeared on the Contender Series and in his first UFC appearance at light heavyweight. But he is gigantic. And since moving up to heavyweight, he's weighed in incrementally heavier, like 230 two pounds, 200. And I think he, he might've hit 240 in one of them. He had the 220 pound fight against Turkali, but he's the kind of guy that I compare him to Linton Vassell where Linton Vassell was a ridiculously huge and ripped light heavyweight. And when he changed to heavyweight, he looked basically the same and just started weighing 250 pounds. And you realize just how much hydration uh, he was like squeezing out of himself. I expect that whatever they weigh in at, Almeida's going to look like the bigger guy in the cage. Uh, Rosenstrike has been weighing in around 255, 260 pounds for his fights. But I've said this before, uh, ahead of his fights with other big heavyweights, when he fought Francis Ngannou, Surreal Gan, Curtis Blades, Rosenstrike did not look as big as those guys. Like he's, he looks like a guy that, and I am not calling him out of shape. I'm, I'm in no position to, to throw stones there, but he, he looks like a guy that probably could walk around a little leaner at like 245. He's like 6'2". He, he doesn't have an enormous wingspan. He's not, you know, Jones or Blades in that regard. Uh, I have the feeling that Almeida by the eyeball test is going to be the bigger guy, regardless of what they weigh. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if Rosenstrike comes in at 260, Almeida comes in at 240, but Almeida looks like the bigger guy. Uh, Almeida's also going to be just the physically stronger guy. Uh, he has demonstrated at light heavyweight as well as heavyweight, frightening, overwhelming, uh, like physical strength. He has developed the kind of takedown game that a certain type of jujitsu practitioner from Brazil seems to develop. Guys like... Gregory Rodriguez, uh, Jacare Souza is the kind of ideal uh, that like the prime example that I think of where they learned some, you know, some, some basic entries and techniques and then made them work with incredible physical strength and a very, very fast uh, first step just from good athleticism. He's got that. And then he also has the thing of being able to finish takedowns that maybe you shouldn't be able to finish through raw strength, just hoisting opponents that are doing all the right things uh, in, in a frightening manner. He also uh, has 
numbing power on his punches. That is definitely carried over to heavyweight. Uh, his submission wins at heavyweight, as well as his knockout wins, have been precipitated by him hurting people on the feet, primarily with his punches, though he has really hard kicks as well. This is an interesting test for Almeida because certainly he could outstrike Rosenstrike, knock him out. Uh, Rosenstrike for a guy that transitioned over from heavyweight kickboxing has been outstruck in the UFC. Uh, he was outstruck for most of a fight by Overeem before catching him with that fight-changing power. He, he got the worst of, of 20 hot seconds against Nganu. Surreal gone, completely snake-charmed him. Uh, like, he's... He, he's... He's a, a former kickboxer, but that's translated at the MMA level into just being a brawler with incredible power and better fundamentals than most heavyweights. I could see Almeida beating him to the punch on the feet, but if Almeida pursues that, that seems like the path of most resistance. That's the path that runs through Rosenstrike's strengths because Rosenstrike has fast hands, throws hard punches, throws them in combination, great power, uh, power that obviously carries uh, through all five rounds of a fight. Again, the Overeem knockout was one of the most impressive comeback wins of that year. And, uh, you know, although he uses them less at the UFC level, when he's chosen to flex them, he has like really hard leg kicks. So if Almeida decides to run that minefield, he might still win. He's a five to one favorite for a reason. But I think those odds reflect what's likely to happen if and when Almeida takes Rosenstrike down because Rosenstrike remains pretty hapless on the ground. Curtis Blades is a tough test for a kickboxer crossing over to MMA in his 30s, but Blades got takedowns with ease and was able to control Rosenstrike, do damage. Uh, Almeida should be able to get takedowns. He should be able to get them pretty easily. And thus far, Rosenstrike's ground game has been basic in the extreme. Uh, his his game, when put on his back, is not especially better than the, I mean, the kind of Greg Hardy level ground game. It, it just isn't. He, do, he doesn't seem to know what to do or in the cases where he knows what to do because his coaches are, are yelling it at him. He's slow to get to it because he's reacting instead of just instinctively going, you know, to, uh, to the right positions. And a guy like Almeida is just going to feast on that. So Rosenstrike's best chance at winning this. I, I don't see any possible way. He just keeps Almeida on the outside and jabs him and low kicks him up for five rounds. That, that just doesn't seem like a realistic possibility. He could certainly hurt him with a single huge strike. Almeida has been caught by several of his opponents, but I think even if Almeida tests his luck on the feet against Rosenstrike for a while, he'll probably do pretty well there. And once he elects to bring this fight to the ground, I think he'll be able to do it. I think he will be able to do it with relative ease. And from there, it will be about as bad a mismatch of skills as you're likely to find. Almeida's top position ground and pound and submission game against Rosenstrike's grappling defense from his back 
that's a bad, bad look for the big man from Suriname. Give me Jalton Almeida here. First round, TKO that finishes on the ground, though a club and sub where he drops him, then, you know, arm triangles him or something on the ground wouldn't shock me either. First round finish either way. Uh, and a big step forward for Almeida, his first legit top 10 win at heavyweight. And from there, the door will be wide open for him to move into actual title contention. That's it for the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC on ABC4, Rosenstrike versus Almeida. I've been your host, Ben Duffy. If this is your first time watching one of our previews, first of all, don't make any assumptions from the show. Normally, I am with my host, Keith Schillen, the executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network. And of the two of us, he is definitely the better X's and O's analyst. Uh, normally, I tee these up, give the history behind the fight, drop a few one-liners. If I feel really strongly about the style matchup or I feel really strongly about an upset call, I'll spit it out there. But for the most part, it's Keith giving the analysis and me kind of reacting to it. So if this is your first time watching one of our shows, give us another chance. Uh, but, you know, like, subscribe, or I mean, I guess even dislike if you want. I, I see the percentages. We do well. Uh, and leave a comment. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you think any of my picks are way out in left field, A, you're probably right, but B, let me know, make your voice heard. Uh, Keith and I are both good about responding to comments on the YouTube page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. But most importantly, join us for the recap. Keith and I will be live right after the main event, usually about 10 to 15 minutes after the main event on the Sherdog YouTube page, where we will talk about all 12 of these fights in reverse order. Keith takes over the captain's chair and we'll talk about it from Rosenstrike versus Almeida all the way down to Clark versus Lisboa in the curtain jerker talking about what was good, what was bad, what was surprising, what was controversial. There's always something what's next for some of the prominent winners as well as losers. And the live chat is popping that whole time on the YouTube video. So we are taking your questions, your comments, and your hot takes in real time. We have a growing community of friends there that join us and hang out after the fights, and we would love you to be part of it. Between now and then, thank you once again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and by all means, enjoy the fights.